Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is October 22nd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Jonathan V. Last of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me, even though we really don't have any baseball to discuss anymore since the baseball season is over. Well, it was, very, it was very, very sad. Yeah, I mean, you guys didn't think that Milwaukee was going to go to the World Series, did you? We did. Really? You thought this was your year? This, this was, was it. The... Team wow. of Destiny. Yeah, Team no of question destiny. about it. They, Team yeah. of Destiny was all set up there. Game seven at home. I mean, I mean it's, you... been a long t- it's been a long time in Milwaukee. It's been since 1982 we've been in the World Series, and that went to game seven. And... Um, I don't know. I'm, this we, game sevens haven't been have not been good for us lately. You did start Gio Gonzalez for two playoff games. You you understand that any team that starts Gio Gonzalez in the playoffs has no business winning a series. Yes, we have Hater. Yeah. We had Hater in the bullpen. <laughs> if only he could have Built. pitched eight innings a game every game all by himself. That's why baseball is so unfair. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be relishing your joy. The Eagles lost no. yesterday too, so you know misery all around. That that is true, but you know, I, I do know that there will be some people who will uh, now be watching the World Series. But it's it's hard to uh, it, it's hard to get off the turf for that. It is. Well, if it will, will it make you feel any better to know that no. the uh, the Dodgers will almost certainly be swept? They'll be lucky to win a game. That that will make me feel better, actually. Believe yeah. it or not, that that actually will. It will. See, that's good. This is you should give in, give in to the hate, as the emperor <laughs> says to to young Skywalker. Let it flow through you, Charles. I'm actually working on that. I'm, I'm working on not having that happen. <laughs> Just, it's, a, it's 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 one of my life goals. It's like you know, get to bed earlier, drink less. Hate more hate seldom. More. I mean, just hate more. No, that's right. No, I just I don't know. I don't know that it works. Uh, since we're on that subject um, of the the intersection of gullibility, of uh, of of gullibility, cynicism, and pure bullshit, the uh, Saudi the Saudis have uh, have come out with their latest cover story, which um, apparently is highly convenient for certain people to believe that, that, uh, yes, it, yes. Oh yeah. Jamal Khashoggi, it Khashoggi is in fact dead. He was killed and it was this terrible accident. He went into the, the consulate, the Saudi consulate and, uh, got into a fist fight with what the 15 members of the hit squad that we sent down there. And, uh, inadvertently we killed him and apparently have misplaced the body, but, Nobody really important knew about this. And then he fell onto a bone saw. Yeah. That's and the right. bone saw just happened to be plugged in and it happened to chop him all up. But <laughs> well, that's because they had headphones on and they were listening to music. But what's remarkable, I mean, look, let's I'm I'm sorry, now I'm now I'm gonna flip over to the, the, the cynicism. You know that President Trump I mean, no one no one really believes this in any way, but it's one of those things that is incredibly convenient to believe. And since apparently selling arms to the Saudis so they can drop more bombs on Yemen or something is so important, um, President Trump's going to get around to believing that uh, that MBS knew nothing or or that there was a miscommunication that uh, he said, hey, would you gently interrogate him, which sounds pretty much like apparently in Arabic sounds almost indistinguishable from um, kill him and carve him up with a bone saw. So maybe there was something lost in the translation there. It's the modified limited hangout, right? This is the we have 
we are back in the place where people are no longer lying in an attempt to deceive anyone. They are simply seeking to find the level of lie which is which they can live with in public most. Like you know, everybody knows they're lying. I mean, right? The the Saudi lines on this have gone to uh, what are you talking about? He's alive. <laughs> like yeah. The first line was, you know, he, he walked right out of here. You know, I don't know where he went to. And then it was, uh, well, he, you know, he may have, he may have died. He, he may have, you know, something might've happened to him. And then it was, okay. So they were, you know, they were interrogating him and talking to him and it was an accident. You know, nobody knows how this happened. And, and it's like, okay, well, he, he may have gotten into a fight with somebody inside the embassy and then somehow have gotten dismembered. And, you know, the weirdness of it is that these lies are not designed to deceive mm-hmm, or convince mm-hmm. anybody. Like they're simply like, you know, can't we just move past this? I'll just tell you something so that it can shut you up, and then we can go back to doing whatever. And, and this, the, the weird development now they have a they have a photo of somebody looks like a body double was dressed like him. That so, um, and now of course we're looking for the body parts. So this is going to play out as, and yes, this is a terrible thing. We need to hold the the Saudi government accountable. Wait, wait, wait! There's a caravan. There's a caravan of thousands of people who are coming to the southern border. It is a national emergency. By the way, can I just briefly comment on this caravan? Please. Uh, you know, I mean, since everybody else gets to be a conspiracy theorist, I mean, everybody else gets to play this game. I do feel left out about this. You know, the, the George Soros is paying all of them. Honestly, if if you are Donald Trump and you are the executive producer of the movie, the election year movie, this is the scene you want. You want the thousands of people in the caravan. Two weeks before coming. the election. I mean, Amazing. honestly, could, could you have scripted this out? I mean, it's like sitting down with the authors of, what was the the the, the famous book, uh, The Camp of the Saints or something like that. You know, they're coming. They're, Camp they are of just the gonna, Saints, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Which is kind of the fantasy that, you know, the all these people are going to swarm over the border and that's it for America. And only Donald Trump standing on the ramparts. Will will prevent all of this. So I, well, I just get ready for you know after the election. I mean, you think the goalposts are moving now? Wait until we get the election results in hand, and then it, you know everything. Everybody will be claiming victory on all sides, and it'll be crazy. And you know, yeah. Republicans maybe the Republicans wind up with fifty three seats. That's entirely possible. Maybe they wind up with fifty one or fifty. Uh, the House is almost certainly gone. I don't think there's any yeah. way that the House hangs in uh but you know like whatever the results are the <laughs> the trump administration will be saying it was it was the best performance in the history of the republican policy no president has ever done better in a midterm election so just just get ready yeah this no everybody how, will have everybody will have everybody will have something to point to although i continue to the one the one shred of conventional wisdom that i continue to cling to is that we should never overestimate the pot the potential of the democrats to blow an election i mean they are just extraordinarily talented at all of this yeah it's, harder it, 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 harder to do that in the house though uh, i i I think. And the other thing you can count on is that if if the Democrats don't pick, if they don't make any ground in the Senate, and if they lose seats in the Senate, then the story for them the next day will be that you know, the truth is the whole idea of the Senate is broken. Oh, I know. Get rid of that. And that will be operable right until the 2020 election, which actually is a very, very good map for the Democrats. <laughs> 
Democrats, they'll do great in the Senate in 2020. And then magically, the, the problem of the Senate, the problem of having this bicameral House will be all fixed. Now, I am one of those, and we're going to get into this because you have a fantastic piece about uh, the you know, never Trumpers are from Venus and always Trumpers are from Mars. And I want to talk about this in a moment. But I, 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 am, I am struck by the fact that and I have sat through so many meetings and discussions where we talk about uh, how Trump and, and, and Trump has imposed these you know, serious threats to democratic norms, constitutional norms, which I happen to believe, by the way. But then to listen to Democrats almost on a daily basis talk about, uh, yeah, we, we, we need to change the way the, uh, the, the, the Senate is structured. The Electoral College needs to be abolished. Uh, and how about we pack the U.S. Supreme Court? <laughs> like raising my hand is, excuse me. OK, really? I mean, could we um, could we talk about you know which norms we're still in favor of or, or, or whether or not the norms we're in favor of shift depending on whose ox is being gored? It, it is sort of a little bit like what you said about truth. It's like n- nobody really cares about whether it's true or not. It says, what can we be comfortable with? So let's talk about the, this piece. And I have a piece which I'm hoping will uh, go up uh, later today, uh, which is also um, a piece about uh, Max Boot and, and Jonathan Chaita. Have you had a chance to read that yet? We I, I that. have. Yeah. Okay. It's sitting in my email right now, yeah, and I'm not okay. reading it because I'm talking with you. No, no, that's, that's, that's good. Real work, Charlie. Oh, no, this is, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about your piece because I really thought uh, you, you you made some points that I that I really I really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, never Trump is from Venus, always Trump is from Mars. Basically, your argument is that never Trumpers to the extent that there are those folks, and I suppose I would be categorized there. It would be the former cannot admit that some good has happened during the last two years. The latter, uh, the the Trumpophiles, cannot admit that plenty of bad stuff has. You do point out though that. Yeah, among Trump skeptics, or at least the ones whose names don't rhyme with Ren Jubin, um, will admit that there are some upsides to having President Trump. I mean, Gorsuch obviously being one of them, the economy being another one, uh, even if they you know, think that the the uh, ultimately the bad outweighs the good. So let's just just talk about that, because I, I do think that is a fair characterization that 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 you, you have these two opposing worlds that are able to look at the same presidency and the same and, and, the, and, the, and the same record and come up with very, very, very different takes. Yeah, this is and and I would say in fairness to many of my never Trump friends, a lot of them are happy to stipulate that, you know, there are a host of good outcomes that have come from Trump. Uh, I, you know, I am. Of course. Yeah, you yeah. are. Uh, you know, many of my, you know, Joan Goldberg is many, many of my closest never Trump friends. Uh, the, the opposite of it, though, is it's very, very hard to find the sort of reflexive always Trumpers who are willing to say that anything bad has happened. And I've, I've never quite understood why that is. You know, why, why do you have to be two fists in? Why, you know, why, why can't you be in for the good stuff and say, eh, you know, I, I'm not really, I don't think this is great. I don't think that uh, the president should be calling women horse face. Uh, they, they have to turn everything into a virtue. And that's a little strange. And, you know, frankly, is, is one of the reasons I've always been resistant. I think I said at the top of my piece, I'm, I'm, I've never been a joiner. By nature, mm-hmm. like I've always yeah. been a very bad team player. This is yeah, why I'm a runner too. in high school. This is why I play tennis. You know, <laughs> like hand up here, only yeah. child. Yeah. Individual sports more more for <laughs> me than team sports, and uh, it's it's a weird thing. And I, but what my what my piece tries to do though is to really grapple with uh, the sort of the best case 
never Trump and the best case, uh, always Trump arguments. You know, the, the people who are who are doing this, not just because it got them a TV contract, but but because they they actually do believe uh, in these things. And they're you know, maybe that's a mistake. Maybe all people are garbage people and we should never assume good faith on the part of anybody. I'm open to that argument. But well, uh, know, but my piece tries to to not take that that tack. Well, my argument has always been that that there is, and and I I do divide Trump supporters into various categories. I mean, they are the transactionalists. I mean, the ones who will, in fact, you know, concede almost everything that you know criticism of of Trump, but will say you know, but Corsage, but Kavanaugh, you know, but the tax cuts, um, or who will argue that uh, yeah, they're appalled by what the what the president does and says, but they like his policies. They will distinguish Trump from. The, the the policies and those are the transactionalists and of course there are the the cultists uh the the the, the tribalists who will believe everything because you know psychologically i, I suppose that's happy but i i've always argued that that you know for the transactionalists there is the the faustian bargain and in the faustian bargain you always get good things i mean we have to stipulate that you do get good things you get wealth you get beautiful women right you know you're your face doesn't sag. You don't get wrinkles, right? Good things happen. You acknowledge that. What you find out is the price is way more than you expected. And I think that right near the end of the piece, you really, I think, touch on the the, the, the key issue here. He said, since this, in fact, this is the third last paragraph. Since the subject of Trump is so fraught, this might actually be the best way to have the same conversation, but with some emotional dis- di- distance. And the big difference, I think, between the never Trumpers and the always Trumpers comes down to a single foundational question. How fragile is all of this, the this being our liberal American order? And Jonathan, I think that's exactly right. You know, how how fragile you know, how thin on the ground is liberal constitutional democracy? How 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 fragile are these political norms? And I guess uh, th- this has been one of the things that, that I've come down is that a lot of this stuff turns out to be much more fragile than we thought. But I think the Trumpists think that that we can we can subject it to all of these indignities. And as long as we get to conservative judges and tax cuts and uh, a higher stock market, that, that we're, we're going to be okay, right? That we are in some ways so exceptional that, that we, 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 we can shatter these norms without doing significant damage. I think that's, that's right. So a, a thoughtful sort of good faith, always Trumper would tell you, uh, look, the foundations of these things are so strong that one bad president, one norm that shattered, all these things are very resilient. The system is networked and robust, and we're going to wind up being fine no matter what. And so we might as well get the policies that we like and that we think are good for America out of it. Uh, and I, I would say I tend to be where you are, just in that I I always have tremendous status quo bias, like in everything I look at in the world. I always think that if we change this, it could have all sorts of very bad, unintended downstream consequences. So we should not not change anything, not you know re-anchor any norms until we really think it through. Uh, but what I what I say in the piece is that. You you have to understand that we are in the 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 credit side of the ledger right now, and you cannot fully understand what the costs of this will be until we get through not only the the immediate and medium term future, but until the next time the Democrats have full control of the government, because then we'll be able to look at what they do, uh, which will be a direct reaction to to Trumpism, and say, okay, now was it really worth it? Was Gorsuch worth all those things that happened? And the, the, the analogy I use for this is the the uh, Bush presidency. 
You know, so if you if you are a supporter of George W. Bush at the moment and it's, you know, 2004 and you're making the case for his reelection and you're defending the Iraq war and the freedom agenda. uh, What if somebody came back to you in a time machine from the year uh, 2015 and said, "Okay, just so you understand that uh, what Bushism is going to give you is it's going to give you Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Majority Leader Harry Reid. You're going to wind up with a president who rubs elbows with domestic terrorists from the 1960s. You're going to get a Trojan horse for nationalized health care. The filibuster is going to be destroyed. Uh, you're going to have two incredibly liberal Supreme Court justices put on. We're going to set up this weird mm-hmm. kangaroo court system throughout the colleges where you're going to have you know guys just being accused of date rape and their lives get uh, totally true. You're going to have Obergefell, you know, gay marriage is going to be legalized. You're going to all this stuff. So do you still want Iraq? <laughs> you know, is that okay with you? And, uh, this is, as I said, there are all these downstream consequences and you don't understand them in the moment because you can't, you can't see the future, but, but, the, but these things are linked and Trumpism is going to get us a whole raft of stuff. And uh, that's why, again, I always say, are you sure we want to do this? Because we don't know what what goes down that path. Why don't we want to stay with the status quo? Why don't we want to keep the norms? Uh, but that's not where we are. Well, you know, I, I was thinking of a, of a different uh, historical analogy along exactly the same lines to go back to Democrats and say, OK, you're going to look the other way when uh, the, you're, the president of the United States is having sex with interns, uh, is lying about it, you know, has committed perjury, and you're going to look the other way. Because in, if they would have known that that would deliver them Donald Trump. What would they be saying back then? And you think back of all of the norms that were shattered during the 1990s under Bill Clinton, when you had a president who was lying, he was engaging in this uh, in this conduct. Political party decided they were okay with all of that. Essentially, the political world decided the character did not matter. And what, you know, 20, 30 years later, here we are. So I keep asking, 30 years from now, we will be paying a price for this. We will be paying a price for what we are doing right now. You can sort of see a little bit of, 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 of the hint of that right now with you know some people on the left who are toying with Avenattiism. You know, thinking, well, if the Republicans have done X, Y, and Z, well, we're going to, you know, adopt the same tactics. This is a spiraling effect, and it's hard to know how you get back, how you reestablish those norms. Um, if you think that those norms were important, that they played a value. And I think that sometimes we only value them when they've been destroyed. But I have no doubt that you're absolutely right about this. You know, that the decades from now, you'll look back and say, you know, when was this, when did this shift take place? Uh, you know, there's always reaction and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and counter reaction to all of, uh, to all of this. And that's why I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, optimistic because, when I see what's happening to the Democrats right now, um, I don't see that uh, the restoration of democratic rule is going to be a restoration of those norms. Do you? Uh, it sure doesn't look we, like it. We, don't right? they, we are not putting things back. We are not putting things uh, back together. You know, speaking of the 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 fate of of conservatism, this is my piece, which which I think is is in some ways related to what what you were writing about. You know, is is sort of you know trying trying to figure out uh, you know what 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 is left of conservatism and what conservatives should be fighting for, and I, I wrote a piece uh, based on the book review of uh, by by liberal writer. How would you describe Jonathan Chait, lefty writer? Uh, I I 
you know, he's one of my favorite uh, favorite yeah. lefty writers. I, I really like his stuff a lot. You know? well, I've got I don't, I don't agree with example. it. No, 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 no. I, I, I agree. And this is actually a respectful piece. And, and he and I have, have had this disagreement for some time. In fact, we had a really lengthy back and forth, uh, which is worth going back on. But, you know, he... He really likes, um, he wrote a piece about Max Boot's book, and, and I said I have mixed feelings about it because I really like Mac Bo- uh, Max Boot's book. I really like Max. Um, but I disagree with, with what Jonathan Chait's theory of the matter is. He likes Boot's piece better than mine because I'm still trying to say that there is a legitimate alternative conservative tradition out there that, that you know, still has value as opposed to Chait's position, which is that, is that, is that you know Trump's rise shows that the conservatism has always been always racist, always morally bankrupt, always white nationalists, you know, filled with hypocrites and authoritarians, and this is the proof that that you know the the, the corruption extends back into you know William F. Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan and all of those uh, leaders had taken the conservative movement in this in this ugly dark direction, and I just I. I, I don't I don't see it that way. And I and I do think it's important to make the point that that, you know, the tr- Trump look, there's no question about it, that what's been exposed is a pre-existing condition. I mean, the dysfunction on the right was there before Donald Trump. Donald Trump did not create it all. And that there were things that we ignored, that we glossed over, that we did not deal with. But ultimately, I also think that that a lot of the the crackpotism that's ascendant right now was a recessive gene in the conservative movement, which suggests that there's something else. And and I guess that's 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 sort of my point. You know, if if Trump's the authentic representative of what conservatism, how do you explain? You know, why is he more authentic than you know Bush or McCain or, or Mitt Romney? And I do think that it's important. You know, not to gloss over there's some pretty fundamental differences between, you know, the thought of Milton Friedman on one hand and Steve Bannon on another. Right. I mean, the nuance matters here. But I yeah. mean, there is a, there is an effort on the left. Um, and, you know, some some never Trumpers are falling into this to basically say that retrospectively, Trump discredits every conservative thinker for se- the last 70 years. Yeah. And I I mean. I would say that that is correct in precisely the same way that all liberal thought is essentially Bolshevism. Mm-hmm, you know, right. I mean, if if you really yeah, believe Adley that Stevenson, the polls, Adley Stevenson is Trotsky, you know, right? I mean, if you and and there is some kernel of truth, but the I mean, the, the genius of the American political system and sort of American political uh, political science and theory is that it it takes. It takes the two poles and it pushes everybody out, you know, to the 40 yard lines. Right. I mean, this is the, you know, the old saw about American politics being played between the 40s is has traditionally been true because uh, if you (laughs) the spectrum is a spectrum with two poles and at one end are the bullshies and the other end are the fascists. And, you know, that's that is politics. That is the, the definition of politics and good politics. Healthy politics is one which sort of isolates the polls and and keeps the debate roughly towards the center and manages to find ways to incorporate the good ideas that the left has and the good ideas that the right has, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I I would say I'm I am mildly sympathetic, but only mildly sympathetic to this argument uh, because I I do think that it's there is a difference in kind. There are a whole host of pernicious conservatives who, had they become president, 
I think you could have fairly said, we'll see, that's just where conservatism leads. Right. Uh, Trump is not one of them. I mean, he, he is in many senses like a Rockefeller Republican. You know, he's he is the most. Or he was. Or, or what, right? I mean, but is the most liberal Republican to win the nomination in you know a very long time, uh, you know, at least twenty years. He has, you know, he barely believes, uh, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. I and all the pernicious things about Trump uh, are not political. Right. I mean, this is what we started talking about. It isn't it isn't political norms. It's it's, uh, you know, sort of (laughs) it's social norms that are that are being blown up. Uh, And that's very different. This is why, you know, again, I I the politics of Trump are, to my mind, like the least the least worrisome thing about him. And I don't understand why our friends on the left don't get that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is the populist demagoguery. And, uh, right. No, but but that's but that's not political. Right? That's not poli- That's not political ideology. That's that is like that's the characterological nature. Oh, of- no, no. I what? Well, no, I, I, I get that. But I mean, there is a tradition that he's exploiting that I think instead of going back to, you know, Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan, that's more like, you know, Father Charles Coughlin and George Wallace and Pat Buchanan. And, and, and those folks yeah. that we, we had thought were on the fringes of, you know, of the of the of the fever swamp. So that if you're if you're drawing a line from Bannonism and Trumpism backwards, I think you go to that, you know, w- what had always been sort of, you know, the, the, the one off as opposed to the mainstream. It, it is like what, what's happening is that people are writing an alternative history. And by the way, are you a fan of Man in the High Castle? I I am not, uh, but okay, only because I don't, I, I don't want I don't want to have any spoiler. I know a little bit about. No, please tell me, tell me. I'm interested in it. I just don't have the time to watch series television. That's it, all. Okay. No, it's it's actually a lot of fun. Do you I, love I, it? I, I, yeah. Yes, I do, and I, I want to give give listeners though a spoiler alert if you have not watched season three yet. So just just there's there's interesting you know, plot. Um, of course the. You know, in 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 this, the the Germans have won World War II, and the Nazis control the eastern part of the country, and the Japanese control the western part of the country, and there's a demilitarized zone in the middle. And you talk about and sort of a discussion of what would America be like under those circumstances. And they really have gotten kind of playful, you know, with it quotes in the in the third season by introducing real people from from history. So, for example, the head of the and I don't know what it's actually called, but but basically the the criminal investigative arm of the of the American Reich is J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> he just stayed on. <laughs> just, you know, he's just part of that. Um, George Lincoln Rockwell, American Nazi, becomes, you know, the one of the becomes the, the, the American chancellor. So there are these names that are introduced. In this alternative history of like, you know, they would, they would have adapted themselves. They would have been, they would have been completely comfortable being part of all of this, which, okay. So I'm just talking about alternative histories. I do think that there is this alternative histories that are being written now of, and probably look, I, I'm going to admit that was a complete distraction, but <laughs> okay. um, the, 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 so the sort of attempt to, to, to go back and say, you know, that, uh, that yes, absolutely. Um, you know, William F. Buckley Jr. L- laid the groundwork for, for Donald Trump, which is like, y- you have to squint really hard. You have to change a lot of things. You have to ignore a lot of history, including the way that conservatives really fought hard to, 
to um, either to excommunicate or exile the crackpots or to keep them within the fold, but to to, you know, modulate and modify their impact. And that that that's where I'm a little bit concerned about this, uh, you know, the the the, the chait argument. And also, I do think. You know, this, this danger of seeing Trump as this logical, organic product of conservatism, which, by the way, I, I almost see this as a mirror image on the right and the left saying the same thing. I think the real danger of that is it normalizes him because it basically says, you know, Donald Trump, yeah, he's pretty much conventional Republican, you know, so therefore it's, you know, there's nothing really out of the ordinary of the things that you're describing, you know, the, you know, all of the, you know, the personal, you know, the personality, the recklessness, the, you know, the, the xenophobia, the, the, you know, passion to truckle to authoritarians and things like that. Yeah, that's just, you know, that's, that's just, you know, not totally inconsistent. That's where the right has been going for generations. Well, wait, no, I don't think it was. Yeah. I, I mean, the, where I would be a little more sympathetic to this argument is, and is if the idea is that populism inherently grows from conservatism, that the skeptical, you know, being skeptical of government and uh, being sort of more in favor of individual liberty and skeptical of elite institutions, that that inevitably leads to populism. And the populism never winds up with guys like Ross Douthat and Ryan Salam running things. It always winds up being a guy like William Jennings Bryan or Donald Trump. And hmm. that I'm not sure I believe it, but I would I would certainly be much more inclined to take that argument seriously than the idea that you can draw a direct a direct line from from Buckley to Trump, because that that just doesn't work for me. I don't I don't think that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, the, the deeper question is whether or not you can have a healthy populism. Um, and that's that's a very real question, especially for those of us who, like myself, have always been very inclined to say that we needed a sort of populist reformation within conservatism, that the Republican Party had become too dependent on elite institutions, too much captured by big business and, and all sorts of, you know, uh, carried interests. And, and now, you know, we've had our populist revolution and we... <laughs> None of the things that we thought would, would be possible from that have, have actually come true. No, believe it or not, I'm really very sympathetic to all of that because I, I do agree. I don't want to sound like Bernie Sanders, but I mean, the system is rigged to a certain extent. We we are a political and economic oligarchy in this country. And uh, I, I know this is not the, uh, the, the central issue with the Kavanaugh nomination, but I did have that moment. Maybe we talked about it where you know, I realized, OK, so. Brett Kavanaugh and, and Neil Gorsuch went to the same prep school. I mean, it's like this yeah. this tiny little you know cadre of of elitists, and and the way in which yeah the you 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 do have the Republican Party at some point, and it's the Democratic Party to a certain extent as well, become agents for these this concentrated wealth. I don't mean to sound like a Marxist here, but I mean there there is there's there's ample reason to have a populist pushback. I guess the irony, of course is that a populist push, uh, pushback led by a you know new you know a new york plutocrat uh, who then restocks the government with the lizard creatures of the swamp the the irony of you know running on draining the swamp which by god needed to be drained but by the last person on earth who was capable or interested in actually draining it but this this of course there's a long tradition of you know populist appeals 
that then are betrayed by the the, the leaders that exploit it. I mean, this yeah. is this is not unique in history. The swamp always wins, right? Uh, yes. No, but this is you know, I I really do truly believe that we because of how peripatetic the Trump administration has been, we have lost sight of. The, the bigger story of 2016 was not Trump, but Trump plus Sanders, that across the board, 45 percent of both parties voted for a populist insurgent who is entirely outside of the recent political tradition of those parties. Uh, I mean, it, it is a much, much bigger story than just the Republicans even. Uh, and to... If if you stripped out the personality stuff of you know between Bernie and Trump and looked at just their baseline pitch, you know the, the the sort of gut pitch, it was the system is rigged against you, right? You know they were saying the same thing, speaking to the same types of concerns, uh, and that's a real thing. I mean, there is a, a real question: yeah. Do we let some of the air out of that, having seen the Trump administration? You know, does some of the air out of that 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 bubble come out? Or as we go into 2020, do you see that continuing to boil? And that's, to me, I think the most interesting part of the the Democratic nomination process is not the, you know, oh, well, will it be a senator or do they have to have somebody capturing the minority vote? It's the much more basic. Uh, can somebody from the Democratic establishment satisfy those voters or do they really, really want a much more populist insurgent? No, that's an excellent question. And uh, it, it also, I think, reinforces the incredible epic political malpractice of the Democrats deciding that Hillary Clinton ought to be their nominee in a year in which it was obvious in every level, on every you know side of the political spectrum, that people did not want a retread, did not want an establishment politician, that this was the year of the populist outsider. And so you look back on on, on that on that decision to put her up you know, up against Donald Trump. And it really is, I mean, I, I think political historians, you know, are probably going to be more focused on the what the hell happened with Donald Trump. But I also think the what the hell happened with Democrats that they thought this was a good idea. What could possibly go wrong? Jonathan, it, is, uh, it has been a pleasure again. Uh, this is a very, very provocative piece over at the, uh, the Weekly Standard. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>